Hey, kids. It's Daisha. You're about to hear my fourth conversation with the amazing Rachel Barton Pine, who this time is going to teach me about Max Brook and Edward Elgar. In this episode, we address such burning questions as, did Elgar invent the post-it note? How was Max Brook like Millie Vanilli? Who was the mystery woman to whom Elgar dedicated his violin concerto? Hint, it wasn't his wife. And is Max Brook a little bit like Iron Maiden, too? Oh, and speaking of the heavy metal, I referenced the band Earth and Grave and heavy metal music in general in this episode a couple of times. For those of you who don't know, uh, Rachel Barton Pine is, in addition to being a classical music violinist, she's a heavy metal musician and a big fan of that music as well. She's in a band called Earth and Grave. They tour. You can actually go and see them. And if you want to learn more about that side of Rachel's music, you should go look up a short episode that we did with her back in 2014. It's called Rachel Barton Pine Rocks and Bows. When you're blown away by all of the things that you have learned and you're thinking, however, can I repay them? Well, just go to iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and subscribe to rate and review the show. It'll just take you a second, and you will feel so good about yourself, and we'll feel good about you, too. A lot of good feeling will be happening. All right, and now a word from our sponsor. Maestro Classics was created in 2004 by Stephen Simon, conductor of the Washington Chamber Symphony, and executive director Bonnie Simon. For years, their family programs, introducing classical music to families, played to sell-out crowds at the Kennedy Center and were praised by the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. Maestro Classics was created to record and share these works for narrator and orchestra with the world. Recorded at the Abbey Road Studios with the London Phil, these recordings contain some of the finest children's music ever produced. Learn more about Maestro Classics at maestroclassics.com and save 17% on all CDs and MP3s with the code CLASSROOM. And now on with the show. There's a rumor going around that classical music can be hoity-toity. But here in the classical classroom, we beg to differ. Beethoven 5. <laughs> the idea that classical music is a zone where we have to feel restricted or we have to act in a certain way, you know, that's not going to be helpful going forward. <laughs> Isaiah is shaking with excitement oh, here. I mean, there's just so many great parts of the opera. He asked me to play his favorite spot in the first moon of the Brahms. And then he said, I started using those licks in my guitar solos. How to be classical music rock stars because there's not enough of that in this business. Occasionally I would plug in the mandolin to my distortion pedals. <laughs> I don't change my voice. And talking to classical I, music. <laughs> I'm playing classical music now. I mean, it's, yeah. it's the same 12 notes. That's what's so cool about it. I'm Daisha Clay, a classical music newbie, and I'm trying to learn all I can about the music. Come learn with me and the classical music experts I invite into the classical classroom. Hello, everyone. I'm Daisha, and welcome to the Classical Classroom. Back in the classroom today for the fourth time, because she just can't get enough, is violinist Rachel Barton Pine. Uh, Rachel is kind of a big deal, having played with virtually every major orchestra you can think of. And you know what? I'm actually going to let you, Rachel, tell everybody what you've been up to for the past year. So what's been going on? Oh, goodness. Um just all kinds of stuff, just the last three weeks. Um, actually, I was <laughs> last week with the Anchorage Symphony doing some Mozart, and one of the members of the audience who came up to the meet and greet table uh, mentioned you and, and your podcast. Oh, so, really? Yeah. So I thought that was pretty awesome. That's um, very cool. 
<laughs> yeah. So then the two weeks before that, I was in Vancouver and Pennsylvania doing world premieres of two different recently written violin concertos. And um, yeah, coming up, I've got everything from Halifax to Oregon to Houston. Oh um, it's just nonstop. That uh, is awesome. So when do you sleep exactly? <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, so so previously, you've taught me about Pagnini Caprices, Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto in E Minor, um, the music of Earth and Grave, perhaps more most importantly, and uh, <laughs> you've taught me about Bach sonatas. So today, we're going to continue my education from Rachel Barton Pine, and then we're going to talk about the music of Elgar and its Bruch. Max Max Brook, is that how you say his name? Yep. Like, that's how hardcore I don't know about these composers. Okay. So, well, the Brook is a great place to start because it's okay. one of the most popular of the Romantic era violin concertos. Um, it's, you know, continually performed. Um, every violinist ends up studying it. I first learned it when I was eight. And, um, you know, it's, I've performed it countless times since then. Yeah. yeah and this is his greatest hit. Now, Elgar, of course, you probably know the pomp and circumstance. Oh, um, right, right, right. Yeah. You know, that, that, that's him. That's the, that's the guy. Um, Brooke doesn't have a hit of that magnitude, but, it, and actually he was very prolific. He wrote so many beautiful pieces, which aren't played often enough. I recorded one of his other concertos, which is um, called the Scottish Fantasy, and it has all these different traditional Scottish folk themes made into a violin concerto. And mm-hmm. you know, Brooke was very interested in folk music from various parts of the world, but this this concerto, this G minor concerto, is solidly German, and in the you know, best sense of the word, it has a, a real strength and a real heroism that is you know the best of that type of German romantic sound. so popular is that it's very epic like the first movement is like well kids will often use the word anger to describe the main theme very stern and strong and by the time you get to the last movement it's full of a feeling of triumph. got that that wonderful emotional arc and the second movement is really the heart of the concerto and it just sounds like a like a sweeping love story (laughs) 
not exactly like a movie soundtrack because the movie because the music is is earlier than than that t- kind of sound, but it definitely has you know you feel like there's some kind of tale that's being told, and it has these you know just really um, you know overwhelming moments, and then it has these extremely intimate moments, and you can just almost almost make up a plot as you listen to the music. Um, and what's interesting is the other concerto, Elgar, it's like twice as long. It's from 40 years later from England rather than Germany. And you can see how music had evolved um, by then, even though they're still both within the same general romantic language with this rich, lush kind of sound from the violin. me who Edward Elgar was like like I mean we've established he was from England but like who what where why did he come to prominence yeah so he was I mean I guess you know Merit Wins Out it was his music that captivated everybody and he was you know really the most popular English composer during his lifetime his music was hugely successful not all of it has survived some of it you know, just was of its time and place and didn't really carry on. Some of it has been unjustifiably neglected, but he definitely has some pieces that are still in our consciousness. The cello concerto is a perennial favorite, not because it's better than the violin concerto, but it's shorter, which means it's easier to program. Typically, (laughs) a concert program by an orchestra will have like an opening piece, which might be an overture or might be a contemporary work. And then there will be a soloist who plays a concerto and then intermission and then a symphony. But if the concerto itself is as long as a symphony, then how the heck do you structure your program? Do you skip the overture or do you have a short symphony on the first half and then put this big fat concerto on the second half? Like, what do you do with it? So that's part of the challenge. You know, I think we should pause for just a second and talk about that, like, I, I find that kind of fascinating. And, and I don't think it's a small thing either that, like, when symphony fr- programs get put together, when radio shows get put together, often decisions are made based on time of the music. Like, you know, it might, it's, it's got something to do with the content, obviously, like the quality, et cetera, all of that. But so much of it has to do with the time constraints. And so yeah. this piece that you're talking about is like this particularly odd length. Yeah, so I definitely think that, you know, obviously there's a certain saturation point for listeners and even, you know, just the flow of your evening. You might uh-huh. go to a to a four-hour Bruce Springsteen concert or a five-hour Wagner opera, but generally when somebody goes to hear the symphony, they're expecting two and a half hours and then, you know, they can go off to their favorite restaurant. So, yeah, there's a cultural thing there. And then also, of course, just with musicians, you know, needing to make sure they don't overdo it physically. Uh Um, Boy, this piece is definitely physically challenging for the soloist. You have to really get your stamina going to be able to make it through this concerto um, because it's so intense as well as long. It's just, you know, one of the most difficult that exists, but but definitely worth all the work, that's for sure. Yeah. 
Elgar himself was thinking extra musically uh, when he wrote this piece. He has a mysterious dedication. Herein is enshrined the soul of dot, 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 dot. And there's all these different theories about, I know, right? Like he didn't want to admit exactly whom he was thinking of. Apparently he was faithful in his marriage, but um, there were a number of different ladies along the way who served as kind of muses to him, you know, women with whom he had these very intense emotional connections. Huh. And so, you know, there's all these flowery correspondence and, you know, th- things that we can sort of glean from history. And there was a particular woman at this time in his life with whom he was very close and thought that perhaps she was the inspiration for the concerto, but then there are other theories that maybe it was a girl from his youth, et cetera, et cetera. But one musicologist at the time, you know, the late 18 or early 1900s, actually made a th- had a theory about the first movement of the concerto that all the different themes were either masculine or feminine, and he had this very complex way analysis of how they all intertwined, and that it was, you know, telling the story of a man and a woman and. Interestingly, Elgar did not dispute this theory, which means that the guy must have kind of hit the nail on the head. And then the second movement, which is just, you know, so full of pure beauty, Elgar actually requested that one of the themes from it be carved on his tombstone. He liked mm-hmm. it so much. It was one of his own favorites among his his own works. Wow. Let's talk about Brooke. I saw that you've included some of his music on your Shredding with the Symphony program. So why is that? Because everything you've said so far does not make me think metal. Yeah, so basically I have a program. You know, I, I, I never aspire to be a crossover artist or to do some kind of in-between genre where I'm playing rock on the violin for its own sake. But I love introducing my fellow rock fans to the, you know, the power and excitement of classical and so I have a program that I do with orchestras occasionally where I'll play covers of, you know, like do an ACDC medley, some Metallica, some Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath. And then in between that, I'll do things that seem to fit like Shostakovich or Paganini. And the second movement of the Brook Violin Concerto, it reminds me of, you know, like, um, you know, Iron Maiden, that, that kind of like epic, you know, just powerful, overwhelming kind of feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Um, clearly the musical language is, you know, far earlier than, than that of metal, but the, it's this type of romantic, larger-than-life um, sort of symphonic sound that actually did inspire so many of the great metal artists who were listening to Mahler and Wagner and, you know, all of those, those composers who are the epitome of the German romanticism. Yeah, that's true. Like, Iron Maiden is very, like, epic. Very, I mean, it's very, you know, hard-rocking, but it's also very epic. Like, I think about um, uh, Wasted Years, that song, yeah. that opening with that the guitar bit, and then it's just, it's really big, and I can see how those pieces would kind of fit together. So if you are just loving this episode with Rachel Barton Pine and you would like to let the classical classroom experience wash over you and to just sort of roll around in it, you should go to our website. It's at classicalclassroomshow.com. You can find all of our episodes with Rachel there as well as every episode we've ever created. You can also connect with us, download free lesson plans that go along with many of our episodes. And there's a little button that says tip jar on our homepage. You can leave us a tip on the proverbial table to let us know that you care. It can be a one-time or recurring gift, and it can be for literally any amount, starting at a dollar and going up to whatever amount you feel says, I love you guys. By the way, our friends at NewY made our amazing website, and they can make a super cool website for you too. They can also help you promote it and your business. For more information about NewY, go to classicalclassroomshow.com slash NW. That's N as in new and W as in Y. And now back to my conversation with Rachel Barton Pine. So why did you choose to put Max Brooks and Edward Elgar's violin concertos together on this album? Well, actually, that's a great question because, you know, it's not obvious, like, you know, they're from different countries, they're from 40 years apart, like, why did I put them together? So first of all, um, one of the great historic violinists, Yehudi Menuhin, one of the, you know, all-time best ever violinists, he recorded both of these concertos in very famous interpretations at the start of his career. Now that was way back when they would have been released on 78 record, you know, LPs. But um, mm. anyway, they were ne never intended as a pair. They were recorded in different years, but they were reissued on CD when I was a student together because they were his two earliest concerto recordings. So seeing them on a CD together, that kind of sparked, you know, my idea of, oh, Brooke and Elgar, like they kind of live together. And then later on, um, well, first of all, the fact that the Brooke is one of the shortest of the standard romantic concertos and the Elgar is one of the longest, you know, so shortest and longest, that sort of, I always think of that. Mm -hmm. But then also it's just something about the approach to sound. You know, when you play other romantic concertos, you know, each one has its own character and the Brahms, for example, is very much about, you know, like you feel the the majesty of creation. It's about something grander than humanity. Um, both of these concertos are very much about humanity and about a very intimate approach to emotions, heart on the sleeve, you know, just really, in Elgar's case, almost confessional, um, you know, but both of them are 
just about expressing yourself and about finding a certain kind of sound in the violin that's very lush and, and rich, very warm. Um, so for that reason, I felt like they, they kind of lived together. Yeah. That's that's a really interesting point that you just brought up. You know, you're talking about how the like the the, the music of the Romantic period like is so sort of terrestrial, so human in in its focus, and then the music of Beethoven, so so big, so much about these sort of big existential questions and observations and and thoughts. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I find that so interesting about about humans, how how we all kind of coalesce around these uh, lenses through which we kind of look at the world, you know, yeah, at the same well, time. And, you know, we've probably talked about this before, but, you know, one of the things that distinguishes much classical music from much non-classical music, whether you're talking about folk music, rock music, pop music, so many other kinds of music, you can set a metronome to it. There's like a steady beat that's going. You can, you know tap your toes, snap your finger, bang your head, whatever the genre is, but there's <laughs> there's a steady pulse. And in much classical, it it is not that way. You know, you might be going along for a while steadily, but then you'll like stretch it a little, take a little time, change mm-hmm. the tempo a bit. That's what gives us our poetry and our our ability to express every nuance of the human experience. And in the Elgar Concerto in particular, he actually writes into the music, get a little faster, get a little slower, get a little faster, get a little slower, like constantly ebbing and flowing and pushing and pulling to the point where you're just like, can't you just let me play with a beat once in a while? It's a very poetic approach, and it takes a while to internalize all of his detailed instructions to the point where you're not just being accurate, but actually making it feel natural. The brook being a bit earlier does not go into that level of direction, you know, in terms of the directions he gives you, but there are a number of places where you're expected to come up with your own ideas. The opening cadenza, you know, the orchestra plays da 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 And then the soloist comes in with a little unaccompanied moment and the rhythms as written on the page would be like no violinist has ever played it as written. You know, it would be uh-huh. square <laughs> and boring. And so you have the choice of how to pull and push. If you heard 10 different violinists play it, you'd hear 10 different ways of making it a little louder, a little softer, getting a little hesitant, gathering steam or coming out and doing it a little more boldly and then making a little bit of an echo or just, you know, how you're going to shape those cadenzas is really where you can put your individuality in it, but it, but it's almost completely devoid of anything resembling a beat. Okay, freeze, rotate, zoom, focus, enhance. Let's hear some examples. Here's Maxim Fedotov. Fabrizio von Arcs. Mm-hmm. 
Renaud Capuçon. Julia Fisher. Christian Svarfar. Svar Svar. Svar. I'm sorry. And last but not least, Joshua Bell. So, you know, it's really interesting having heard all of these different examples of different musicians playing the same piece of music by the same composer, you know, and each of them has their own interpretation of the piece of music and their own relationship that they're kind of developing with the composer. So that makes me think, what is, what is yours as you're kind of reaching back through time and you're kind of in dialogue with like Brooke and Elgar? What what are you getting from that as a performer? Well, one of the things that really defines a great masterpiece is that you're never going to get bored with it and you're always going to discover more and you can, you know, like you can just play it a million times and still, you know, it feels fresh. And so it's just, you know, about reveling in the melodies and listening to the orchestration and just trying to delve ever deeper. Yeah. And also as you evolve as a person, you know, the more life experiences you collect, and the more your personality is shaped and formed, you know, the, yeah. the more complexity of humanity you're bringing to these pieces. And so it's, you know, it's yeah. a continual evolution. But I imagine you, like, develop some sort of relationship with these, with these pieces and with these guys, too. Like, Absolutely. Well, I always think it's a collaboration between performer and composer, even if the composer is long dead, that you yeah. have to try to get inside their head and figure out what they wanted by looking at the score and reading historic correspondence and, you know, just whatever resources exist. But then you also have to sort of key into your own instincts because if mm-hmm. if it doesn't feel right, you know, like you can intellectualize all you want, but if it doesn't feel right, then it's not going to be effective for the audiences. Yeah. So you have to have everything you can of the composer plus the best of yourself coming together. Right. What was your your favorite takeaway? What do you feel like you learned about Elgar as a person, like like going into this in-depth experience 
of, well, of playing just, and recording this music. Yeah, I mean, it's so funny to read his flowery writing about how much his dear friends mean to him and stuff. And I love the stories of his creation of the concerto. There was a violinist, a great London concertmaster named Billy Reed, who would come over to his house and he would have different versions of the same passages stuck up, and you know, like little bits of paper, you know, writing down different possible variations of an idea and they'd be stuck all over his walls around the room and some on the backs of chairs and others on the mantelpiece and the violinist would walk around the room playing all the options and Elgar would excitedly you know discuss what he heard and they would come to some decisions and you know that just seems like such a vivid scene of you know Elgar just being so enthusiastic and just <laughs> searching for what's exactly the right solution. Yeah. And what about Brooke? Like, what did, what, did you, what did you take away from that? Well, apparently the guy was a bit of a curmudgeon. He was very <laughs> musically conservative. He didn't like a lot of these newfangled kinds of compositions that were coming out at the time, the tome poem, all of these things that were blowing structure wide open. Mm-hmm. Even though, interestingly, you know, his piece is not exactly, you know, a, a formal cliche. You know, his first movement is rather short and it leads directly into the second movement so you know he was also being a little bit bold and and unconventional but compared to other people at the time of course he was he was a bit of a stick in the mud and, um, <laughs> but I, I feel for the guy because um, you know I guess he didn't realize that this concerto number one was going to be his greatest hit and it far mm. uh, by the end of his life he was already seeing Many of his other wonderful pieces kind of fade from memory, and but this piece was performed all the time, and it was the piece he was known for, and he almost came to resent it because he's like, okay, you know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's a good piece, but I wrote other good pieces. Why are you all just playing this one all the time? And um, and he, you know, almost kind of had a love hate relationship with it because of that, and he had years ago, you know, sold the rights to the piece for some pittance, and was not recouping, you know, what he should have from its being a hit. And he, you know, was a little bit destitute, and he tried to place his manuscript for sale, thinking that, you know, it was so popular that surely that would fetch something. But um, he was swindled by the person who was supposed to sell it for him. It was this pair of American sisters, um, I hate to say, um, my country (laughs) women um, doing in poor old Brooke. But, yeah, they absconded with it, and he never heard from them again. Oh, it's just such, such a story. You know? Oh my God! <laughs> wow. So he was basically like a one-hit wonder. Well, sort of. I mean, like that—that's what the story sounds like. It's like the sort of typical, you know, guy makes amazing song, guy sells rights to song. That's I know. all he's ever known for for the rest of his life. It's very like, uh, I don't know. All I can think of is Millie Vanilli. Exactly. Uh, well. <laughs> Except Brooke actually did write his own music, but um, no fake job there. But yeah, I mean, definitely, um, this has probably been happening to artists, you know, since the beginning of time. So yeah, here's really an here's an example from the classical world from the 1800s. The same old story. Wow, that's crazy. Well, Rachel Barton Pine, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming back to the classroom and teaching me about yet more composers. Um, Hope to see you when you come to Seattle. Yeah, I can't wait. All right, take care. You too. Bye. Well, we've reached the end of the episode, but like any good bingeable content, 
You can keep the fun going. Who needs to interact with other people or go to work or feed babies when you can go to classicalclassroomshow.com and listen to Classical Classroom all day? It's a perpetual fun machine. Wee you can also find ways to connect with us on social media, or you can email us at classicalclassroomshow at gmail.com. Thanks today to the home of Classical Classroom, King FM in Seattle, where we will definitely take down the Christmas tree before Groundhog's Day this year. Thanks to our birthplace, Houston Public Media. Thanks to the official hair gel supplier of Classical Classroom, Jeremy's Hard Shell Hair Gel for multiple cosmetic and household use. Thanks to Rachel Barton Pine for being on the show. Thanks to me for saying words. But most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>